Welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. Think you need a lawyer? You probably do. Hello, Cops and Writers. Thanks for being here with us today for episode number five of the Cops and Writers podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I am the host for the show. Today, we're going to take you into the courtroom with our special guest, former Assistant District Attorney Sharon Rick of the Racine County District Attorney's Office. Have you ever wondered what happens next after a person is arrested and processed by the police? Who ultimately decides what criminal charge a person will face and will try this case in a court of law? Look no further. ADA Rick will reveal the inner workings of the criminal justice system for you. In this episode, ADA Rick will give detailed explanations of how a person is charged with a crime, the different hearings that could result before trial, how she prepared for felony cases, including homicide trials, the role of confidential informants and the DA's office, and personal stories of putting away dangerous felons during her career. ADA Rick will also tell us what level of education and special training that is required to become an assistant district attorney. All this and more in today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. Sharon Rick, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. (laughs) All right, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sharon. Sharon Rick went to Marquette University for undergrad. She was a history major, and then she went on to law school. She worked as a law clerk for two judges with the District 2 Court of Appeals. She then started in the Racine County District Attorney's Office. She started in Traffic and Misdemeanor as the office's domestic violence prosecutor, along with other assorted crimes that go along with traffic and misdemeanor caseload. She found herself being dragged in to help out with felony prosecutions with several large drug sweeps that were conducted throughout the years. And that is where she found her niche. She was lucky to get the guns and drugs caseload after six years in the DA's office. Racine was a target-rich environment for that caseload. And while the amount of work was daunting, it was hardly ever boring. She has trained other prosecutors across the state of Wisconsin in a number of areas, including prosecution of domestic violence cases and various aspects relating to prosecution of drug cases. She has done extensive police training in Racine County and across the state from the new, quote-unquote, mandatory arrest law that went into effect around 1990 to report writing, drug investigations, overdose investigations, search and seizure, search warrants, roll call updates, in-service training, post-academy training, just to name a few. She retired from the DA's office in 2016. All right, Sharon. Okay. So let's start out with, (laughs) tell me how you go from being a history major to Going into law school to being a DA, that's that's quite the jump. I decided when I was 12, I was going to be a lawyer. Oh, okay. And I decided when I was 14, I was going to be a prosecutor. Wow. And, and how did this like come about? Is it books, movies, family members? How did that happen? Definitely not family members because okay. I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. Okay. So I, I had an aunt who was a legal secretary. And I thought that sounded interesting. Okay. But I just honestly can't tell you what made me decide that I was going to be a prosecutor. So my entire focus, the entire time I was in college was to take the classes where I could get the absolutely best grades. Okay. So I could get into law school. Did they have a pre-law undergrad? Not at the university that I went to, not at Marquette. Okay. All right. So So I graduated from college in 1983, got right into law school and pretty much aced all of my criminal law classes and struggled with a lot of the like civil procedure classes and trust in estates and things that I had no interest in and I, things that I knew I would never do. Gotcha. Gotcha. So 
you're in law school. Marquette is a Jesuit school. It's a private uh, college, um, pretty well known throughout the country. Yeah, it's, it's a great school. You're in law school. You did your undergrad in history. You're in law school. What was it like? I always think of the paper chase. Okay, I'm dating myself, you know, with the, you know, exactly. the Socratic method of teaching where you have to stand up and they, they drill you pretty good. It was a lot like that in some classes and it was a lot more laid back, like lecture, some interaction, some questions in other classes. It wasn't like the, the one thing about law school that scared everyone the most was that you never knew if you were going to be called on. So you had to be completely prepared every single day. Okay. So, you know, there were hundreds of days that you were not going to get called on, but you still had to be completely prepared. And your worst nightmare was being unprepared because of something and then being the person that was called on. So what would happen to you if you didn't know the answer? You could either stand up and look like a fool and be, (laughs) or you could take a pass and that would, or could, I should say, detrimentally affect your grade. Okay. So the professor calls on you, either you kind of flub it or you just, it's like, I honestly don't know this answer. They keep track of that. And if that happens enough times, then you're out the door. I wouldn't say out the door. I would just say that your grade gets marked down. Okay. All right. Interesting. About how many hours a day would you have to study? I would say I would do about six on weekdays and 12 to 14 on weekends. So having like a side job or a part-time job or a full-time job would be pretty darn difficult in going to law school full-time. Well, I had multiple part-time jobs during that time. Really? When did you sleep? Holy cow. That's a lot of work. When I graduated from law school, I said that I had a new hobby and it was called sleep. Yeah. (laughs) What were some of your part-time jobs? Oh my gosh. I worked in a kitchen in a boy's dormitory cooking. Okay. Um, I did the law clerk thing. I also kind of had my own business where I would make um, like sticky buns and cheesecakes and uh, a little catering business where I would go out to people's homes and um, set up and, you know, do a dinner for 30 people. Okay. Interesting. Very cool. You were quite the go-getter. Holy cow. That's a lot of work. I've known people that had full-time jobs, but they went to law school part-time. They didn't go full-time. And even that was pretty daunting, you know, but wow, good for you. What tips would you have for folks that are thinking about going into law school or, you know, becoming an attorney? How could you prepare yourself or is there a way you could prepare yourself for something like that? The biggest thing that I would say is as hard as you have to envision how you're going to handle the debt before you even start. Okay. Because the amount of debt that you're going to have is going to be daunting. And the federal government has had a program for a couple years where people that go into public service jobs like prosecutors or public defenders um, get credits towards their student loan payments. Okay. But then there have been a bunch of years where that isn't funded. They haven't, they've let it lapse. So you can't count on having your student loans forgiven at some point in time. Okay. Yeah, because I know some people, you know, their student loans are as much or more than their mortgage. It's it's there it's daunting to to think that you may never be able to afford a mortgage because your student loans would you wouldn't be able to pay for both student loans and a mortgage. Wow. And and we'll get into it later, but that's also a reason why a lot of people that go in the DA's office don't last very long because there's more money to be made in private practice. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. So obviously, since you were a kid, you knew you wanted to be a crime fighter. Did you ever think that you'd want to be a police officer or go into that facet? No? Just the courtroom stuff? Just the courtroom stuff. Okay. All right. So you go to law school, and then from there, where did you go from there? We'll be right back. 
Today's episode is sponsored by the thrilling audiobook Avenging Adam, book one in the FBI K-9 thriller series written by author Jody Burnett. Sparks fly between hotshot FBI agent Rick Sanchez and no-nonsense FBI K-9 handler Kendra Dean as they chase a ruthless serial killer. Witness an electrifying blend of suspense, romance, and redemption, where internal conflicts challenge our heroes as much as their target does. Will they catch the killer before it's too late? Grab Avenging Adam now. It's more than a story. It's an experience. Get 50% off the Avenging Adam audiobook at jody-burnett.com forward slash cops and writers. Um, there is a little brief period of time when I was working for the law firm that I was clerking for, but then I went to the District 2 Court of Appeals as a, a law clerk for the judges. And the law clerks basically do a lot of research, they read briefs, they um, write drafts of decisions that the judges then review. And it was, I think, an excellent training ground to be a prosecutor because you get to, first of all, do extensive research on every single topic you could ever imagine, but then you also have to read the trial transcripts. Okay. So you can see why this prosecutor didn't win her case oh. because or why she did win or he did win his case is because he made a really good record. And so you're always thinking about how to make your record so that in case there's an appeal that if there's a conviction, it will be upheld on appeal or that the evidence won't get suppressed. What is making a record? What is that? That's the questions you ask and the answers that your witness gives you, or that's the statements that you make on the record to the judge as far as oh, okay. representing what's going on in the case. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, okay. So you, you're doing that. And then how many places did you apply for when you were looking for a prosecution um, job, prosecutor job? At least 10. Okay. So you have to be geographic, geographically flexible. That's for sure. Very. And press, the, the other thing is that prosecutor jobs, they open up and they want to be filled right away. Okay. So I was fairly limited because my job had to go until August of 1988. And when I got, I had the interviews in Racine County and I got the job offer, I had to say, I have to make sure that I can take it because they needed somebody right away. And I contacted the person who was going to be taking over my job in August. And it worked out for her that she could step in and she could take my job at the end of June. So I could leave basically six weeks early to start the job in Racine. Okay. so Otherwise, you, I wouldn't have been able to take it. Gotcha. So you get the job in Racine as an assistant district attorney. In ADA, we call them. I was in Milwaukee County, so we're neighbors. And um, <laughs> so I'll tell you that when I was at Marquette, yeah. I worked in their victim witness office for my first two years of college. And then when I was a senior at Marquette Law School, I did their prosecutor internship. So I worked in the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office one day a week with various prosecutors. Yeah, that so is, I'm eminently familiar with how oh yeah, Milwaukee it, works. That is a meat grinder, let me tell you. It's, it's a little crazy. Um, <laughs> so you get to the DA's office, you get hired as an ADA. What kind of training do you go through for that? What does None. that look like? None? None. Just None. You, you went through law school, you did your clerking, you got some experience under your belt, and here's your caseload fly be here's free your, i mean come on here's your stack of 150 files go for it really so even like okay you know what wow that kind of no kind of mentoring or anything like that nope. here's nope. your desk here's your computer exactly wow so <laughs> how did you feel though how, how did that feel yeah. you know when you first got there and it's your first day on the job and here's your stack of files i mean how did that feel felt great okay this is so what i'd always wanted you're ready to take the challenge absolutely okay wow that's really cool all right um so you're doing that why don't you walk us through your newer 
or even after you've been there a while, what's like a day in the life of an ADA? What does that look like from the time you get to work to the time you're done? And how long are you working? Um, I used to like to get to work early. So okay. even though our office didn't open until eight o'clock, I like to get there right around seven o'clock in the morning. Okay. Get a cup of coffee, sit down at my desk, pull my files, uh, do any projects that were going to take a little bit of concentration, a little bit of time. And you say, um, with your computer, we didn't have computers back in those days. The <laughs> okay. secretaries didn't even have computers. Wow. I mean, it, exactly. Well, we didn't have so, computers when I started in 95. It wasn't until, I think, four or five years later we started getting computers and we started doing all of our reports on computers, et cetera. Everything was handwritten in carbon paper. Exactly. And when the secretaries got computers, I would have to stay late if I wanted to use the computer <laughs> to type anything up. Really? So, really. So if you get there, you, I mean, intake is always, always, always going on. Now, intake, so, what do you mean by that for people who don't don't know? Anybody, let's say that uh, an officer takes a report for a domestic violence situation mm -hmm. and the person isn't there anymore. Okay. So um, they fill out a report and they send it into our office and you have to review the police reports and make a decision on whether to prosecute or whether to not prosecute. Okay. There are times when you can read it and you want additional investigation done. You fill out a request for additional investigation, send it back to the police department for them to do what needs to be done. What, what, are, some examples of, what are some examples of additional investigation? Um, like interviewing witnesses, trying to get video maybe of something. something there wasn't maybe. video in those days. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Now there's video. There mm -hmm. wasn't in those days. And and now a lot of times it's it's so, so different now than when I started. Right. It's it's like comparing apples and oranges. It's just so different. Mm -hmm. I mean, now it would be um, – Are there were there any messages, any phone – did she send any phone messages to somebody saying, you know, just like X just beat me up or something like that because mm – -hmm. That's a, like a contemporary statement that can uh, authenticate her statement that she gave to the police. Sure. Things like that. Yeah, where a lot of writers in, you know, like TV shows and all that, where they kind of, the waters get a little bit muddy. And even in the Cops and Writers Facebook group, people are like, well, you know, the officer, you know, I charged him with this. And it's like, well, you put that on the arrest report. That's what the charges are. But the person who does the charging is the ADA. It's not the police officer right. or the detective. The other thing that people get wrong a lot of times is the, the, the notion that you press charges. Correct. A prosecutor can issue charges whether anyone presses charges or not, if they believe that they can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And they there are also times where they can prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt, but there are other reasons that the prosecutor is not going to charge. For instance, if there's a bad search or Miranda wasn't complied with, or, um, you know, you might know in your heart that the person committed the crime. You just don't have the evidence to prove it. Yeah. That's sometimes my officers would get salty about it and, you know, they would have a, a decent case and then it's like, you know, the DA knocked it down to this, you know, because you can amend the charges to maybe a lesser charge that you have a better chance of proving if it went to trial. And or it just, you know, it, it wasn't enough. Whereas a police officer needs probable cause to arrest somebody. That's what the quantum of evidence that would lead a reasonable police officer to believe that, you know, Joe Blow committed whatever crime. Whereas you have a higher threshold as an ADA. You have to prove right. beyond a reasonable doubt. You have right. to, you know, and whenever you're taking a case, I'm sure you have to think to yourself, it's like, okay, if I'm in front of a jury, you know, I have to convince this jury. Now, most cases right. don't go to a trial, but you never know. And you can't, you have to know that you can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt when you issue it. 
you can't hope that there's going to be more evidence that's going to come in somewhere <laughs> down the line that's going to bolster your case. And there's cases that you believe you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt and everything goes to hell in a handbasket. It does. I, yeah, I've testified a bunch of times and yeah, just when you thought everything was hunky-dory, I was like, what? All right, well, whatever. But I always told my guys and I told myself, you know, it's all right, we'll get them next time. You know, this is a career criminal. This is not their first, uh, you know, crack at you know, up, up at bat. This is not their first time. They'll do it again and they will get caught. That's right. And if you do make such an impression on the person that they decide to commit no more crimes ever again in their life, it's still a win. Yeah, that's very true. That's very, very true. So you've got this monster caseload. You know, you're going, you're reviewing cases. So you, you have intake. So you got a fresh batch of cases from the night before or the day before. And right. in Wisconsin, how many, um, how many hours do you have to charge something from the time that somebody is arrested to the time that they have to get charged up? 48 hours, unless there's a probable cause statement filed by the per, the police officer or myself as a prosecutor, I can find a file, a probable cause statement mm -hmm. and it has to be signed by a judge, a magistrate or a court commissioner okay. to prove that there is actually probable cause. And then after that, the time is kind of flexible. It's just what's reasonable. Okay. Yeah. Cause what happens is, you know, you arrest somebody like say at midnight you know, a police officer or detective arrests somebody around midnight, you know, they get sent to a, in Milwaukee at least, it'd be a district station, their temporary holding facilities. Most of the time, that's where they go. And then after all the paperwork is done, and the paperwork could take three, four hours, it depends on how complex and how much stuff you got to do, or if the suspect, you know, is complaining about some medical condition, then you have to do a med run. You know, you have to go to a hospital. There's, there's all kinds of things that can muddy the waters and slow things down. Or, you know, once the person is in a jail cell, if it's super busy, the officer is going to have to go back out and take assignments again. So he may not, right. or she may not even sit down to do the reports until it's quitting time. And now it's overtime, you know, it's eight o'clock in the morning and you know, that's what they're doing. So, their next step is county jail. They go to the county jail. Right. Then from there, what happens after the county jail? When do they see like a judge or a magistrate or who? How does that work? It depends upon. Um, generally, in Racine County, it would be the next day or that Monday. Okay. Um, if the paperwork's not ready, it would be the day after that. And they go before the court commissioner, we read the charges, bond is set, and if it's a traffic or misdemeanor case and not guilty plea is entered and they get their next court dates, if it's a felony case, then a preliminary hearing date is set. Sure. And that's as far as it goes. Okay. And your bond is set. Okie dokie. Yeah. And um, so you're going through these cases you're either it's yay or nay as far as you're going to charge this case and or you might say hey i need you to do a little additional uh, follow up you know for the police officer or the detective or you could knock it down to a lesser charge when you're reviewing it and you still issue charges but they're not the original ones that the police officer or the de detective put on the arrest report Correct. Or the other thing is somebody stops by your office and says, can you look at this? Because I think this should be, you know, something else. This should be a felony. I don't think this should be a misdemeanor. And, you know, increase the charges as well. I had that happen to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I, yeah I, I was a newer cop and it was a domestic violence kind of thing. And my sergeant told me, he's like, you know, arrest him for battery domestic violence and she had a um, domestic abuse injunction also that was served on him. And I was thinking to myself, I think that bumps it up a couple of notches, but okay. Then I got to the DA's office and the DA was ready, ready to sign off on everything. And she's looking and she's like, let me talk to the DV person because I usually don't handle these. And she's like, the DV uh, DA comes in and is like, don't you know your job? And I'm like, what? And she said, no, it's this and it's this. And I'm like, um, sorry. Um, okay. Whatever you say, I, I'm cool with, you know, but she was chewing my ass out and I'm like, all right, you know what? I started at midnight. It's now 11 o'clock in the morning. Do I really want to hear your tirade? No, but you know, fine. Okay. 
so be it. You know, I just nodded and smiled and was like, you can put whatever you want on that piece of paper because now it's yours. You know, it's like, now I get to go home and go to sleep. Yeah, exactly. And that's all I wanted it to do. I just want to go home and go to bed for God's sakes. But, you know, that's the human side. Can I also say not everybody has officers come into their office. We would just get police reports and we just rely on the police reports from the officers. That's surprising. Uh, Back in the day, quote unquote, when you talk to old timers on the job, every person they arrested, they would have to go to the DA's office, you know, if it was a state charge Mm -hmm. and present Mm -hmm. the case literally in front of the DA. But Milwaukee. Oh, I remember. I remember. Yeah. So we would have to do that. Then, you know, it just got too much. So we had liaisons that would handle like misdemeanors. And that's a police officer and some detectives that usually have, you know, their day shift. So they've been on the job for a while. They know what they're doing. And it's it's a nice inside job. And you would just present the case to the DA on the behalf of the officer that worked midnight to eight. You know, you would just, this is the case. And you were the liaison. So you would still have physically have a police officer, but it wouldn't be the arresting police officer. We'd have liaisons. And then there was certain felonies. I remember the first case I took to the DA was a a man bit off a piece of his daughter's nose. It was, oh. I think, the septum, or I just like right kind of by the tip. You know, we, it was seven o'clock in the morning. We got called to a disturbance, and I was very new, and so was my partner. We just got off probation. We're all excited that they let us out by ourselves, more or less, without <laughs> like a senior officer. And we get called to this, and it's like this guy was wearing a white T-shirt. I'll never forget it. It was just covered in blood. And his daughter was probably about 20, 21 years old. She's in the corner just whimpering. And we're like, what the fuck? And this guy, all he wanted to do was fight. All he wanted to do was fight. And it's like, all right, here we go. You know, so we get him in cuffs. And I knew she was hurt, but we didn't know exactly what. And I called for backup because this guy just wanted to brawl. And he was still intoxicated. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. He was drunk off his ass. And he gets in a patrol wagon and, you know, it's time to start interviewing this poor woman. You know, we called for an ambulance and all that kind of stuff. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, there's something missing on her nose. My partner and I, we're just, we just have that like one or two seconds of looking at each other. Like, are you kidding me? This actually happens. And it's like, oh God, well, welcome to police work. You know, that's, it was just. I had a police officer who had part of his ear bitten off. Oh yeah. That's, oh, oh, I've had. In 25 years, I had all kinds of body parts bitten off, you know, seeing that at work. And you're just like, oh, my God. Yeah, Mike Tyson wasn't original with Evander no. Holyfield. You know, the whole biting of the ear thing, That's that wasn't the first uh, time that ever happened. So, yeah. So, yeah, that was so, – that, it was an eye-opener. Then after, you know, you look at a few files, you scoop up your – I called it the – Leaning Tower of Pisa, my <laughs> files for the morning, run off to court, sit in court for four, five hours. There's a lot of days when you get done with your morning calendar at 1245 and you have to be back in court at 130. Okay. And usually the afternoons were longer hearings, like motion hearings where you have officers coming in to testify or um, more involved Sentencing hearings where it's yeah. going to take. Let's talk about a motions because okay. that's the. I always t- tell people that's what makes police officers good report writers, is going right. through a motions hearing because I've been through them. A lot of times it was either a gun or a drug case, and it was a motion to suppress. You know, you had the defense attorney saying, "You know what? This police officer got these drugs or this gun illegally." They didn't, you know, right. they violated my client's rights. So why don't you kind of go through that a little bit? There are a number of different ways in which rights can allegedly be violated. Um, there's stop, there's frisk, there's, uh, all, there's, you know, exceeding the scope of the stop. There's holding a person too long. There's all different kinds of ways that a person's rights can be violated. And a defense attorney has the obligation to bring up any of those bases. Now, I would say 999 times out of a thousand, 
they're baseless and you still have to present evidence. You still have to present your case for the judge to understand that the actions of the officers were appropriate. And it's important as a prosecutor to know how to make your record. Remember when I talked about reading transcripts back at Mm -hmm. the court of appeals, you know, for, for a motion hearing, you want to paint all of the circumstances that surround the officer's decision. So, you know, it's a dark and stormy night and this is a high (laughs) drug trafficking area and there are frequent shots fired. And I would, I would go through five pages of questions before we ever got to the first time the officer had contact with that particular person that particular night, but that's all quote unquote, making the record so that the judge and anyone that's reviewing the case understands why the officer acted the way he did. Right. Yeah. And, and it's a judge that decides this. It's, there's no jury there for that. It's a judge. Correct. Yeah. So, so the, you have to make, you have to put in, an astonishing amount of detail that may seem irrelevant, but it all goes, whatever is the training and the experience of that officer all goes into whether he was appropriate in making that decision or not. Correct. You know, anything to discredit the officer or detective that made the arrest, you know, and like you said, that's the defense attorney's job is to, you know, they're, their clients, you know, advocators. So, and as a police officer sitting up on the stand, sometimes it got really tiring. You know, it's like, well, how did my client know that you're a police officer? Um, I was in full uniform. Did you say that right. in your report? Yeah. And it's, you know, that's, that's why I knew when I, later on I become a boss and I'm reviewing arrest reports and it's like, you know, on day, date and time, Officer uh, O'Donnell was in full Milwaukee Police Department uniform with badge and nameplate affixed to the outermost garment. You know, the the street lights were on, you know, illuminated, you know, right down to the last detail, like what you were saying. You know, it's, it, it sounds a little silly, but it is important. So we go from there. So you're, you go, well, let's back up a little bit. So you your afternoon is in court. What does that exactly right. mean? You, okay, so you maybe a motions hearing or what else is court? Court could be just an, a restitution hearing. What like is that? Somebody uh, stole something or damaged property or mm-hmm. committed a burglary, and the victim wants to be compensated for sure. the money that they're out. And it it can be the fact that they're now so scared to live in their house that they put in a security system, the defendant can still be responsible for the, those costs. Oh, okay. And by the same token, there are things that victims expect that they're not entitled to, like pain sure. and suffering. Okay. That's a civil concept. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it can be like motion hearing after motion hearing. Um, sometimes in the afternoon, if we had a trial that was going to be a little bit longer in length, we would pick our juries in the afternoon so we could start with witnesses first thing in the morning rather than use up that time to pick the jury. So how, how just, would you pick a jury? Because people oh, don't know. A lot of people don't you know. You have a ton of people that file into the courtroom <laughs> and there are usually a bunch of people that are initially seated. And they take an oath to tell the truth. And then the judge asks them questions like, do you know any of the people here? Is there, have any of you had a negative experience with police officers? Have any of you had been the victim of a crime? Is there any reason why you could not be fair and impartial in this case? And then there are some people that raise their hand. And when they answer that, you know, for whatever reason, they can't be fair and impartial then a person from the audience comes up and takes their spot okay. where they're sitting in the jury's, um, in the jury panel. You start all over asking that, are there any questions that you would have answered yes to? And once the judge is done asking questions, then the prosecutor gets a, a chance to stand up mm-hmm. and ask questions. Like with what, regards what would to, you ask? 
I would ask, has anybody ever been the victim of a crime before? Has anyone, and then clarify, house broken into, something stolen, um, you know, property damaged, victim of a hit and run. Is there anything about that experience that would affect your ability to be fair and impartial in this case? Did you have any contact with the district attorney's office? Uh, did you have a positive or a negative impact or contact? Was were you, Was your experience positive or negative, would it affect your ability to be fair and impartial in this case? Has anyone had contact with a law enforcement officer? If so, please raise your hand. Is there anyone who felt that they were treated unfairly by a police officer? Okay. If so, please raise your hand. Um, has anyone ever been arrested for a crime before? And I would always say, and I'm not going to ask what that crime is. I said, I'm going to have some follow-up questions. My follow-up questions were always, did I would ask, has anyone been arrested for a crime or had a close friend or family member that's been arrested for a crime? And uh, then my follow-up questions were, did you, did the person who was arrested feel that they were treated fairly? So I'm not asking necessarily about them, but did they feel that they were treated fairly by law enforcement officers? If they said no, then I was going to ask, do you believe you can be fair and impartial in this case based upon Sure. The experience that the person that was arrested had. Um, I'm going to ask, you know, if it's a, a situation that has to deal with firearms, does anyone here own firearms or have a close friend or family member that owns firearms? Because a lot of people, people don't want to say that they have a lot of guns in their house. Okay. That it's, that's sense. a private thing because they sure. may, you, that may open them up to having their house burglarized because the defendant's going to have the juror information, including the juror address. Okay. That, yeah, that, that, that makes total sense to me. Yeah. So you, you don't want to inadvertently make them a potential target. So sure. do you or close friend or family member own firearms? Have you ever fired a firearm? What are your views on firearms? Do you believe that uh, a felon should be prohibited from possessing firearms based upon a prior felony conviction. Okay. Um, if somebody says a felon should be able to possess a firearm, would you be able to follow the law as the judge instructs you and find the defendant guilty if the state proves its case beyond a reasonable doubt? And if they say no, then they're excused. Gotcha. All right. That makes total sense. So one of the big misconceptions that I run or run a run across would be people think that, you know, every case is going to trial. Like we alluded to before, most cases don't. You know, you dispose of a lot of cases through plea plea agreements, correct? Correct. So how does that exactly work? Like the bargaining between you and the defense attorney and the judge and all that kind of good stuff. What I tried to do and what I think a lot of people that I worked with tried to do is I pretty much made the same recommendation for every single case that I handled. For instance... Uh, possession of cocaine or cocaine base with intent to deliver greater than one gram, less than five grams, would be three years in prison. Mm -hmm. And if I went up from that or if I went down for that, the defense attorney wanted to know why I was recommending more or why I was recommending less. Okay. And I would tell them flat out, this is why I'm recommending more. This is the, I'm recommending five this time because. The last, this is his fifth arrest for possession of cocaine with intent to deliver. And he's been to prison before. So obviously he isn't getting the idea that he needs to stop dealing drugs. Sure. Or I'm going to recommend less because this is his first time. You know, whatever other positive things may augur in the defendant's favor. Sure. And I also wanted to make the point of recommending exactly the same thing every time. So there was no racial disparity. So the white guys got the exact same recommendation as somebody who was a person of color. Sure. Um, one of the most frustrating parts of my job as a prosecutor is to make the recommendation, the same recommendation for people that I saw being similarly situated and have the judges just completely disregard what my recommendation was. And how often did that I, happen? A judge would just go against what the DA and the the DA and the defense attorney kind of agreed upon, right? Before you even talk to the well, judge. they don't always 
we don't always agree. Like okay. sometimes there's a stipulation. Sometimes the defense is free to argue. Okay. Um, you know, what I found most disconcerting was when judges would um, go over my recommendation, especially with a person of color. Okay. Because I had a reputation as being a pretty even-handed, but still pretty, I'll say, I won't, I don't want to say harsh is the wrong word, but pretty stringent recommendations. Okay. Like if you did, you, if you did the crime, you were going to do some time. Oh, that's from Beretta. But I tried to be. <laughs> the theme song I, from Beretta. <laughs> I tried to be, you know, as keep everything even because. Right. You want to be consistent. That. You want to be consistent. Exactly. And like you said, you have a reputation that you have to uphold. And, you know, if people know on the front end, okay, she might be kind of tough as far as, you know, her recommendations, but she's fair. You know, she's, if it, you know, if it was me or somebody that is not me or, you know, somebody that lives on a different part of town, everybody's going to get the same, you know, discipline. They're going to get the same, you know, exactly. they're going to be treated the had, same. And that's the way it should be. I had people request that I be their prosecutor. Wow. Because, yeah, I know, but they knew that, you know, I was going to be firm, but I was going to be fair. Sure. If there was a problem. I was going to point it out and take it into consideration. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, if they screwed up, they knew, you know, they were going to do their time. Sure. Sure. I get it. So you got that, you know, you had a, you know, we keep on alluding to this, but it's true. DAs have a huge caseload, you know, huge. for the amount of cases, for the amount of DAs. And I think that's pretty much across the board, wherever you go. They always seem like they're very overworked and underpaid. You know, we were we were chatting before we started recording, and most police officers make more money than the DA. That's right. Yeah, but and the thing is that police officers get overtime, and most prosecutors are salaried employees. So if I'm working 80 hours a week, I'm the same sure. every single week, mm-hmm. no matter how many hours I work. Right. So, yeah, that, like I said before, you're overworked, you're underpaid, but you you see the greater good, and, you know, that's that's important. Um, and the criminal justice system can't work without you, obviously. Right. You're an officer of the court. Correct. So that's, that's super important. Anyways, out of your caseload, you know, like, say, a typical week, how many cases would you have, do you think, go across your desk about – I know, I know that could vary. 75. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a whole bunch that you have and to... And as, that's as a felony prosecutor. Okay. As a misdemeanor prosecutor, it would be hundreds. Wow. Yeah, because like I said, when I was new and I'd have to take a case of the DA, there'd literally be files stacked <laughs> on their desk, you know, almost as tall as them. Yeah, you're just like, holy cow. Yeah, you're, you've got a lot going on here. Out of all those cases, just off the top of your head, what kind of percentage do you think wind up going to a trial? I would say about 3%. Okay. And it seems like it's a lot of the more serious ones where, hey, I got nothing to lose. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the other thing that um, I think people don't always understand is that it isn't just one case set for trial on one day. The court, first of all, stuff happens. I mean, witnesses are unavailable or their witnesses are unavailable or the stuff's not back from the crime lab yet or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so the case is adjourned. So a judge may have 15 trials set on their calendar for a given day. And of the 15, you may have seven set up for trial that day. Sure. And you don't know you don't know if your witnesses are going to show up. Right. But you gotta be ready time. to go. You have to be ready you to go. You gotta roll. be ready to go. Yep. That's that's I can tell you the worst month of my career as a prosecutor was one May. I there were two work days out of the entire month that I was not in trial. 
I did two attempted homicide cases and a homicide case in that month. I didn't know of the, you know, two of the the days that the attempted homicide cases were going. I was ready to go on a number of other cases okay. just in case something happened to the attempted homicide cases. And my jury for the attempted homicide case was out deliberating. I was picking the jury for the homicide. Wow. So you're just kind of hopping between uh, courtrooms. I've also had to share a gun with another prosecutor because he was in trial in the courtroom next door <laughs> on an attempted homicide. And I was going to trial on a homicide and the same gun was used by different defendants in both cases. <laughs> okay. So we were shuttling the gun back and forth. <laughs> That's funny. We worked out ahead of time that it was going to be marked as exhibit number one for the record in both cases so that. We wouldn't have to, we wouldn't screw up what we were numbering it as and refer to it by the wrong number when we're, you know, I'm going to show you what's been marked as exhibit number, you're like, was it three or is it 17? They, so it was marked as exhibit number one in both case, in both courtrooms. Okay, gotcha. Um, what you see in movies and TV, you know, some of the, the dramatics in a courtroom, yeah, sometimes like the most dramatic thing or is the opening and closing statements that, you know, the attorneys make. Or, you know, right. I have, I have, After a couple back surgeries, I'm no longer able to run. Okay. I'm now a walker. Okay. And I would go through um, different aspects of either my opening or my closing while I'm out walking my dog in the morning. <laughs> okay, so your dog has or, heard a lot of stuff. <laughs> well, I just, I'm not talking out loud. I'm going through it in my <laughs> oh, mind. Okay. But here's my funny story. For my very first trial, um, I lived in Pewaukee and I was commuting down to Racine and I was practicing my opening as I was driving along I-94 to get to Racine County. And there used to be an outlet mall in Kenosha County, which is the next county south. I was so intent on practicing my opening over and over again. I drove completely all the way through Racine County. (laughs) It was only when I hit the outlet mall that Kind of like reality set in, and I turned around and I had to drive all the way back. But I didn't uh, want it to sound rehearsed, but I still wanted to do a good job. You sure. know, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into a lot of aspects of the trial that you wouldn't think of. Like um, people learn things differently, and mm-hmm. you're trying to teach the jury. So you have some people that are like auditory learners, and you have some people that are visual learners, where they have sure. to see something in order for them to take it in and you have to be able to get your point across sure. to jurors both ways. That makes sense. And then you have to kind of at sometimes almost be a sociologist. Yeah. Like you have to understand like how you have to understand like how like trends are going right now versus mm-hmm. how they were back when um, the crime was committed. Sure. And then there's even things like uh, vice lords versus gangster disciples that your average juror is completely not going to understand. Sure, sure. And you have to make put it all in a in a format that's going to be understandable to them, and not sugarcoat it because these are not nice people. <laughs> no, and no. Understand that you can you cannot like them. You might want not want them you know, to come into your home. But the question is whether you believe them or not. Correct. Okay. So we that's some of the courtroom stuff. Let's move a little more towards uh, confidential informants. Uh, uh, the police, police officers, detectives, a lot of times, C, or what we call CIs, would be involved in drug cases. That was like a real big portion of our, the oh, yeah. CIs. So a lot of times, you know, they're going to have to work off. They get arrested for a possession case. You know, they don't have a, the, the worst record in the world. Maybe the quantity isn't a ton and they could work it off. Why don't you explain how that works real quick? The person gets arrested um, and they want to not have to go to jail. Um, and it doesn't even have to be for a drug case. It could be for... um a retail theft that they want to work off that okay. charge. And if the store that's a victim is agreeable, then, you know, they agree not to go back in that store and will allow them to work off charges. 
And as an office, our office had a pretty strict uh, limitation that we would never allow somebody to work off charges if it was an operating while intoxicated. And we would never allow them to work off any kind of domestic violence charge. Okay. That makes sense. You were, you were going to do your time. Sure. You're going to go through the system with that. Um, otherwise, if a person agrees to work off their charges, they have to do a certain number of buys or mm-hmm. make a certain number of observations that a search warrant can be based on. Sure. Person is searched. They're observed going up to make the buy. They're observed coming out. And then they give the... Uh, supervising officer, the information, who is in the house, what did they see when they were in there, were there any guns, were there any guns, um, things like that. And mm-hmm. then the some, you know, like Milwaukee County is a little more stringent on the number of buys a person has to get in order okay. for them to do a search warrant. I was fine with one buy. Oh, and if okay. you get one buy out of the house, then we'll go do a search warrant and sure. search warrant and sure. Um, take it from there. And then the CI isn't going to have to testify because everything is based upon uh, the, the evidence that was obtained in a search warrant. Sure. Some CIs are testifying CIs. Some are non-testifying CIs. Okay. Um, For testifying CIs, we had an office policy that a prosecutor in our office had to approve of the person being, uh, Testifying CI, we had one guy that had something like 26 prior criminal convictions. <laughs> okay. And they went out and spent $5,000 on drug buys, and they started sending the, the cases in, and nobody was going to issue charges because the guy had 26 prior yeah, criminal that's, offenses. That's quite the uh, career criminal uh, guy there, that's for sure. So – in order to avoid something like that happening, um, there was a guy that committed perjury that Ooh, wanted yeah. to testify as nope. a CI. Nope, that's not happening. Yeah. So that's why we had that rule is give us a chance to uh, look at things so that you don't spend a whole bunch of money and waste a whole bunch of time. Sure. And have a whole bunch of cases that just made the drug dealers richer. Okay. Something else off topic a little bit. Something else that you see, like in movies or whatever, is a the relationship between the prosecutor and the defender. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of uh, defense attorneys out there, and there's lots of prosecutors. But once you've been doing it for a while, you kind of get to know everybody, you know, unless oh, yeah. they're new. You know, they're not. Yeah, you you get to know everyone, and you kind of know their strengths and their weaknesses, and you kind of know what they're going to do before they do it after you've been there exactly. long enough. So what's the relationship between, say, you know, you're the prosecutor, then there's a defense attorney. Is it super adversarial? Like you see sometimes it's like, you know, oh, you know, we hate each other, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or is, is it professional? How does that work? It depends upon the person. Okay. Um, there are some people that are just assholes <laughs> and you just can't deal with them. They're, they're, going to do everything in their power to make the process as arduous and difficult as possible. And those, and you know, you just have to take a deep breath, find your Zen and just (laughs) do your job. Just go through everything you have to do. There are some people that are super cordial and honest with you. They're very forthright. You know, they'll come in my case sucks. I just want the best deal that I could get for my client. Sure. And, you know, we, as a prosecutor, you just appreciate that degree of forthrightness. Um, yeah. Please don't waste my time. You know, exactly. with, you, know you can always tell sometimes like a, a new attorney or a newer attorney, defense attorney that start, it, it would almost be borderline nonsense. And the judge is kind of looking like, what are you talking about? You know, you're up on the stand, like say at a motions hearing is, yeah, this has nothing to do with any of this. You're just trying to discredit this cop, obviously, but now you're, you're borderline just stupid. Stop it. You know? So, and then there's others that I've testified. I remember I had a real high profile homicide um, trial that I uh, testified in, you know, there's news cameras everywhere. It, It was a big deal. 
And the defense attorney treated me better than the prosecutor. This prosecutor right. did not like cops. It was very obvious. And I'm like, And that's wow. just, I mean, some of my very best friends that I've had from all the years that I was a prosecutor and even now today are cops that I've worked with. Sure. Um, you know, there, there were guys with the drug units that I, I probably saw them more than their wife did. <laughs> I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that in the least. So that's the way that works between defense attorneys and prosecutors. Uh, let's see here. Going out to crime scenes, when would an ADA or a DA go out to a crime scene? We tried to send somebody out to a crime scene whenever there's a homicide. Oh, wow. Um, okay. We didn't do that in Milwaukee. There isn't enough DAs. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were, uh, like, because of the experience I have with, uh, like, drug deals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would be in a van when uh, they were doing prostitution stings, so oh, I could okay. listen to whether it was coming close to entrapment oh, or yeah. not. Oh, that, 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 yeah. I've run a bunch of those, and yeah, that is some sticky ground there. You never know. And uh, so, yeah, I'm sitting in a van with two guys who are burping and farting and <laughs> all of that fun. And, um, I've been to, uh, I had a, a really super bad, um, operating while intoxicated crash happen, not too far away from my house. Oh, wow. And the sergeant was very, very, very new. Okay. And just wanted to make sure that everything was going to be handled correctly. Gotcha. And so literally I, it was like the Friday of Thanksgiving weekend. I jumped in my car. It was like a mile and a half away from my house. I went up there. The first thing I see is a firefighter sweeping up debris from the crash. And I'm like, jump out of my car. Stop sweeping. Stop <laughs> yeah. sweeping. They're good at killing crime scenes, destroying evidence. Uh, they looked at me like I was a space alien. <laughs> Who is she? And why is she yelling at me? <laughs> yeah. But Sure. Yeah, I, I've had, uh, I remember I had an officer-involved shooting. I was a police officer. And I got sent to a shooting. And the suspect was gone. The victim's on the sidewalk. And paramedics are working on them, and my partner and I are finding all these casings everywhere, and we both look at each other and say, those look like ours. You know, this looks really familiar. And then, you know, the cop that shot this guy actually winds up calling dispatch and say, hey, I'm two blocks away. Could you send a sergeant? Uh-huh. To, you know, okay. He wound up getting arrested on the spot. He was like 500% in the wrong. I mean, like way wrong. He was intoxicated. He was just, it was just a cluster. And we're all shaking our heads like, how, well, whatever. How did this even happen? You know, are you right. that stupid? But yeah, you are. He obviously lost his job, yeah. went to trial. and so, it, yeah. My dog is going to make a guess. Oh, you. okay. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, that's the first time yeah. I ever had a, a DA come to my scene. Yeah. You know, I was a police officer and an ADA, you know, I have this female coming to the tape. And she's like, could you let me in? I'm like, who are you? Well, I'm ADA whatever. I said, you get any ID? And she flashes. She's got like a little badge and an ID card. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, they give you guys badges. That's cool. I didn't know that. And I'm like, all right. I had a badge. Yeah. I did not realize that. And the thing about it was that I know oh. after I did some more digging, I know there's DAs in different states that also carry guns. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, you're an officer of the court, you have a badge, you have an ID, you have a gun. You know, this I was going to segue to, it's a dangerous job. Did you ever get in any sticky situations where you put away a lot of like bad people and they're going to remember that? I had somebody that. put a contract out on me. Really? How did you find out? Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, he called somebody in Chicago to do it and the DEA had a wire up. Okay. On the guy that he called. Wow. To set up the hit. And so 
DEA contacted first the sheriff's department up here. Sure. And then contacted our office and said, this is the information that we have. Yeah, that, that's crazy. We're getting close to the end of our time here. Let's finish up with common errors that writers make when they're telling a story, when it, the criminal justice system or DAs specifically, the DA's office. I think that there are, um, they, they don't understand how time intensive things are. Okay. And I don't think they understand like the volume. When they're writing a book, I understand that they're telling their story, mm-hmm. but at the time that they are, they're dealing with the one case that's the topic of their story, sure. a real prosecutor has, I, I would have as many as 150 files. So you're judging all files, kinds of cases, sure. All kinds of cases. Right. I, mean, I used to be like an absolute master of multitasking. I could read a search warrant and talk on the, the phone at the same time. Sure. And by sitting in court, when we got computers in court, it was an absolute godsend because I could be sitting there and I could be getting work done Okay. while everything else is going on. And my ears were attuned to like the verbal cues. Is there anything else, Miss Rick? No, Your Honor. And go right back to writing the brief or whatever it is I was working wow. on. Okay. How about like, you know, search and seizure, Miranda? That's what, you know, what I see is it's always being trampled. It's very misunderstood. People are either overdoing it or underdoing it. And I think um, there's a lot of that. And I think that there's a lot of people that want officers to have personal relationships that they're really not allowed to have. Like, Like with a victim or... You know, I never dated a police officer that worked in Racine County sure. because I didn't want to disclose to every single mope in the Racine County jail that, you know, I'm dating this cop. Right. And it's not against the law. And maybe there are some departments or DA's offices that have specific rules against that, but we didn't. It's just that. If you start doing things like that, you know, you start dating victims, you know, like during, you know, you know, during the course of a trial or something like that, you're just setting yourself up for failure. You're giving the defense attorney all kinds of ammunition against you. So, and it's 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 ammunition that they don't, they don't need to have. Right. It's just stupid. You know, that's just, it's unprofessional is what it is. Um, it, Miranda, when, you know, when should when should a police officer or detective Mirandize somebody? When a person is physically restrained to the extent associ- that would be a, technically associated with a, uh, an arrest. So if a person is put in handcuffs, even if they're only being temporarily detained at a scene, I always trained officers to say, you are not under arrest. I'm just detaining you until we can sort things out. Is that okay? You know, sometimes the the person would say, yeah, or and other times people would have like an issue and, and they would say, I'm just trying to protect myself and it's for your safety as well. So I'm just going to put you in cuffs until we can get things straightened out. Sure. Yeah. You know, on TV, you see, you know, it's like, okay, the, the big climax of arresting the bad guy. I'm officer, I'm Sergeant O'Donnell and you're under arrest for, you know, murder of, you know, blah, blah, blah. You have the right to remain silent. It's like, no, why are you doing that? You know, I remember one of my cops started doing that and I'm like, what are you doing? Well, and I'm like, you saw that on TV, didn't you? I said, stop it. Stop it right now. (laughs) So I was like, all right. Well, and a lot of times you don't know what they're under arrest for. Dispatch tells you they've got a warrant and they have a warrant. Well, yeah. So your investigation is just starting. You know, you right. might think, okay, he's under arrest for X, Y, or Z. Then it's like, and that's what your your train of thought is, and that's why you're putting handcuffs on this person. You're arresting him. But, you know, it's the free-to-leave test is how we were trained. You know, is this person free to leave? Is he under arrest? Is he free to leave? That's that's a good barometer. Um, but it's all reasonableness. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to hold this person here until I find out exactly what's going on. But that doesn't mean I could hold him for two days, you know, in the back of right. my squad car. You know, it's all reasonable. Are you being reasonable about this? And you don't get 
take somebody in for questioning. Oh, that's one of the biggest pet peeves I've got. You know, it's like there is no such thing. Either you arrest them and then, you know, you process them. Then you do the questioning, interrogating. And before you do that, that's when you read the Miranda rights. You don't read them before you start fingerprinting them and, you know, whatever. That's just, yeah, they get that wrong all the time. And I know it's for dramatic flair but i'd have people's like you didn't read me my rights i said i didn't question you did i ask you any questions regarding this i was reading a police report one time and and it was typed so it said that the person was a little under arrest <laughs> and i was like that's like a little pregnant <laughs> that is exactly what i said and then sent a request for additional investigation back saying, what is a little under arrest? And he said, where did you get that from? And I, I, you know, sent back his report and he goes, that's a typo. I did not say that. I did not say that. <laughs> that's funny. I like it. I like it. Oh, my. All right. We'll tell you what. We're a little over an hour here. And I try not to go over an hour, so I think this is a good spot to end. Thank you very much to you and your dog that made a special guest appearance. Appreciate that. that. Sam. Sam. Hi, Sam. All right. Well, very good. Thanks again for being on the show. Okay. Okay. And uh, you know what? We have so much we could talk about. I'll try and have you back on again. How does that sound? Okay. That All sounds right. good. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed episode number five of the Cops and Writers podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you, Assistant District Attorney Sharon Rick, for being on the show today. All this great information will be helpful to people who want to write accurate crime fiction. Thanks to all of you who support my work, either through buying my books in the Cops and Writers series, available on Amazon. Just type in Cops and Writers in the search bar and you'll find them. Being a patron at patreon.com forward slash Cops and Writers. Participating in my Cops and Writers Facebook group, hiring me as a consultant for your work, or visiting me at my website, copsandwriters.com. Thank you so much. Before I go, could you do me a favor? Could you please subscribe to the Cops and Writers podcast and leave a review? It would be so helpful, and it makes sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast. That's it for now. Thanks again, and let's be careful out there.